This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Spring out there today. Spring! It's 35 degrees. Compared to where we've been, it feels like spring. And there's a little sun. There's no wind. It's a beautiful bike ride in there, Eddie. It's a glorious thing. Cade Massey, that's Audie Weiner. Our two other buddies are in here, too. Eric Bradlow sitting quietly. Preparing diligently, serious. He's the guy on the front row with his I'm here too, but not preparing so diligently <laughs> Shane, as it turns out. Shane, different story. Different story. <laughs> I was on the fourth row last night for the Celtic Sixer game, so we can talk about that. All right, we will. I'm sure we will. That was a big one. Goodness gracious. We are going to be here for the next two hours. You guys can join us. We wish you would. Give us a shout. 1 844 Wharton. That's 1 844 Or drop us an email anytime you're listening. If you're catching a replay during the week, you can drop us an email businessradio at cirrusxm.com. Or hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyBall is our handle. At WMoneyBall, probably the best way to reach us. You can send us questions, observations, complaints. Suggestions for the over-under segment at the end of the show. We're back into the off-season. Football off-season means it's over-under season around here. Give us your ideas for that. We have a regular program today in that we have guests at the bottom of the hour. And at the top of the next hour, we have a kind of a special guest at the top of the next hour. Shane Battier is joining us. The reason Shane's joining us today, you may not know this. Not enough people know this. Today is, to the day, the 10-year anniversary of Michael Lewis's article, famously titled... The No Stats All-Star. He wrote it for the New York Times Magazine in February 2009. It's been assigned in classes. It's read and loved and passed along. And for whether you're into sports analytics or not, it's a great great piece about Shane Batty and the contributions he made kind of off the stat sheet and that what that meant for analytics. And it's going to be interesting to revisit that with Shane at the top of the hour. All right, guys. What has caught your eye in the world of sports? Well, we could start out with the Celtics Sixer game last night, if you would like. I mean, the Sixer. Who was there? What? Were you there? I was at the you game. You were there. Excellent. I was at the game. <laughs> yes. What, what row? What row were you in? Well, I said in the fourth row. I got good seats. Good <laughs> seats to the game. But I've been, let's be clear, I've been going for 22 years to the Sixers, and so I've sat through a lot of really bad games. I sat through the process, and I continue to keep my seat. So let's, uh, I've been very patient waiting for a good team to show up. So how did it go up. last night? Tell us about the well, game. Well, we, the Sixers lost the game, but you know, here's the thing that's interesting. Uh, for all the good things the Sixers have done lately, getting Tobias Harris from the Clippers, again, top 50 player in terms of war, so all that's good. Um, we have three fundamental flaws that the Celtics have figured out how to abuse every single play down the court. Because it's transparent what they're going to do, and there's not really much the Sixers, in my mind, can do about it. The first thing is, whoever... J.J. Redick is covering, you post that person under the basket. Now, either that person is going to score or that person's going to get open and then pass the ball around and they're going to get a wide open three. The good thing is Sixers need Redick on the court because they need his scoring. The other thing is the Celtics are one of those rare teams that their fifth best player, because that's who Redick covers, is a really good player. Other teams can't expose him as much. So number one, you expose him defensively. Second, 
We have one of our best players, Ben Simmons, cannot shoot the basketball. So what happens is when Embiid gets the ball down low, he's immediately double teamed by Ben Simmons' defender. Sixers want to rotate the ball around after 15 seconds to Ben Simmons and give him an open shot. The Celtics are like, no problem, Ben. Shoot any shot you want. (laughs) So that's number two. The third, there was not one offensive time down the court where the Celtics center was probably within 15 feet of the hoop. Now, why does that matter? Well, that means Joel Embiid is not within 15 feet of the hoop. They probably got 15 to 20 dunks last night because without Embiid near the basket, there's no defense interior. So the three things on offensive side, they've got, they abuse whoever Reddick's covering. Their center, well, it's Al Horford, this guy Thiel, who they have now that replaced Aaron Baines because he's injured. They shot pretty much only threes. And then the third thing they do, again, is they double-team Embiid on the offensive side. So they basically have found three fundamental weaknesses. So what it made me think is, as a team, should you focus on your strengths, which the Sixers have many? Or should you try to shore up your weaknesses? How do you build a great team? Can, can I ask an, a somewhat ignorant question? So I've been following and reading a little bit about the 76ers picking up all these superstars. And I'm hearing from you a, a wonderful story about how this is a disaster. Ultimately, a good team can just pick them apart. And that the, the team constructed well, can, this can, way can is problematic. Can I add some detail here, though, for a second? Because didn't they lose by like... To one point, maybe three points. So it was it was very yeah. very true, close. but it is home. I they mean, played but, at home. I know, but the, I mean, so I love what Eric said. I, I think you're just oh, pushing no. back on the picking them apart yeah, kind of like, terminology. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going. So no. is, is this a story we're hearing, or is it really this bad? No, I think the Celtics again. What the Celtics can do is number one, they can match up athletically with the Sixers. Right. So they've got a bunch of great players and great athletes. I mean, Tatum and Brown. Like, Tatum can cover Ben Simmons 101. Yeah, if it's only not the a Sixers could have had Tatum, that would have been so yeah, great. Right. So here's my, yeah. here's my question. If I'm Ben S- Simmons and I'm sitting here listening to Bradlow take me apart, what do I say in response? Hey, I'm not so bad. Come on. I'm an all-star, right? What, what, what he does he bring? Shoot. He can't shoot. Everyone knows he, he I know that, but why yeah. is he considered great? So what is it? Well, Explain because he, he, his assist-to-turnover ratio is fantastic. He... Leads the team. I mean, he shoots really well because he gets. All, he can penetrate. He's a six ten guy. So he who shoots can from get the, under, the basket from, from the post. Absolutely right. Okay. He shoot, not even no, not from the post. Next to the rim. Next to the rim. He can't. If he backs a guy down in the post, as long as it's four feet from the hoop, he's fine. But if he's eight to ten feet, he doesn't have a jumper. He's not from, even yeah. good no. at eight to ten feet. No. Wow. No. Not yet. Now, let me just say, he's been taking more shots, which the fans are being patient about and good about. He has to start shooting the ball eventually. Can I ask yeah. you, but the, no. So he's got a fundamental... Was he this bad in college? college? Like, he was. He was. Okay, we knew this. In, and and, and I mean... Well, by the way, he didn't somebody. play... He was an Australian player. He, as far as I know, I don't. he didn't play, right? He didn't play in the U.S. in college. Ben Simmons never... Oh, he yeah, played LSU. LSU. Yeah. Sorry. Thank you, Matt. He played LSU for a year. Yeah, he was this bad in college from shooting. Interesting. So do you think, um, I mean, obviously, as he sort of transitions, perhaps, into a more shooting per, uh, Competent a, a shooting player, he's 22 years old. Right. Um, is there perhaps benefit, even even if he isn't actually going to get to the shooting kind of, you know, quality of some of, some of the 
people around him in sort of increasing that unpredictability, right? Because it, it, it makes him harder to match up if he if people know that at least he is mediocre at shooting as opposed to just bad at shooting. Yeah, I think if he could shoot 40% from yeah. the field on mid-range jumpers and actually take half a dozen of them a game, it would add to the yeah. uncertainty. And that's what he started to do. At least in the first quarter of the game, he tried at least to shoot the ball. And then he went back to the... I'm not Look. He went back to the old but very good Ben Simmons. It was all layups and dunks. That's what he scored on. He stopped shooting. He, they would literally leave him open from the foul line, wide yeah. open from the foul line. Bradlow, how much of credit should we give to Brad Stevens for this? A ton. People think he's one of the best coaches in the league, and you're describing a very intentional strategy, rigorously followed, that presumably he should get credit for. Two questions, though. Are, one, how many other coaches come up with that kind of stuff? And then two, in the, if, if, if this happened in the NFL— and one team showed how to defend a, a great, you know, a great offense or a great defense or exploit a good defense or whatever. Every other team in the league would copy it, and by the end of the season, everyone would be playing the same strategy. Yes and no. They would if they had the players if to they do could. it. So no, no, but that's my so whole point. So do you point. think Boston has unique personnel or I think, for I think this? Boston has a unique. Again, let me just say, I don't think most teams in the NBA have six, seven, eight, nine men deep who can all really play basketball. So again, J.J. Redick covers the fifth best offensive player on the other team. On the Celtics, that's Rozier, Marcus Smart, Markeith Morris. It's somebody that's able to, a big, strong guy that's able to post, and by the way, put up 18 to 20 points last night. That's why. The Celtics have eight or nine deep. Most NBA teams don't. So what about other teams in the East then? So the, the the Bucks continue to look good. The Raptors continue to look good. We've got four. I mean, in some ways, we we complain so much about the West and the Warriors, and mm-hmm. and but the East is really firmed up to an interesting race now. We've presumably, if it comes down to those four teams in the semis for the East, that's a really interesting little tournament. Well, I think it's I think it's also it's probably five now. I mean, I mean, it depends how you want to count the Pacers. I mean, since Oladipo went down, all they've done is win six straight games, which is a huge credit. If I told you, since you guys aren't as NBA fans as I am, if I read you the roster of the uh, Indiana Pacers, the only person that you might have heard for, from, I feel like is Jermaine O'Neal still on him? <laughs> yeah, right. And, and the answer is, who, who do you think we might know? I just forget the guy on the Sixers that used to be on the Sixers. Uh, even you forgot. No, that'll whisper in my ear who the guy is on the Sixers. Uh, well, a strange the, jump shot. The guy on the Sixers was played for like five years on the Sixers. Very athletic guy on the Sixers. Thad Young, thank you. That's the one guy on the Sixers. They used to be on the Sixers that you might have heard of. The rest of their squad, yeah. I mean... And they're sitting there at number three in the East, by the way. Yeah, right. and having won six straight games, all of them since Oladipo, their best player, actually is out now for the season. Mm-hmm. So let's assume they're not going to be in it. Yeah, there's four teams that are clearly head and shoulders above the other. I mean, the Nets come in at 500. There's an eight-game differential between the fifth or sixth place team and the, and the top four or five. So that's a lot of fun. I mean, over in the West... The Warriors, you know, they, they seem to do this NBA thing right now. Which maybe the Bulls used to do this perfectly. They'd kind of cruise, and then they would have this other gear when it got to the playoffs. Is there any reason to think that they they're not doing that? I mean, the, no. I mean, for God's sake, the Nuggets are sitting there number two right now. No, but here's the here's the thing that's <laughs> happened in basketball, and it's more. I call it, you know, I was thinking about this last night. It's more of like I'll call it a degrees of freedom thing. If you ask Steve Kerr who the MVP has been for the last twenty twenty five games, he'll say Demarcus Cousins. Because here's the thing, he because of the amount he's trying to get back into basketball. Remember, he the was out. Cousins? Yeah. yeah, yes, I, I know. But go, I'm, okay, now I'm fascinated. What you're going to say? Well, this is what Steve Kerr said. I'm just telling what Steve Kerr, the coach of the Warriors, said. His comment is, 
He's the guy trying to get back into shape. He's going full out on every play. Uh, He's the one that's carrying the energy of the team. And this allows Steph Curry to relax, take it easy. Clay Thompson, take it easy. Draymond Green, take it easy. So they're not going to get to the playoffs and be worn out and fatigued. Because DeMarcus, DeMarcus Cousins, Cousins might. Yeah, all right. But, but he, they, don't right, need they don't need him. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, he's a, you know, do you remember last season? He was a 27.14 rebound guy. And he's, we could argue, the fifth best player yeah, on the Warriors it's, it's right now. That team and is so, crazy. But so now he basically can do all the dirty work during the season, and these other guys are just taking it easy. I it's, think the Warriors are much better than they've been before. What's the report on Cousins, other than playing this little catalyst for the Warriors for now? What, what's the report on him as a player after sitting out that long? Also, He's been kind of a bad actor, right? He's like a bad locker room guy. Is it the case that the Warriors can handle that better than other teams can handle it? Yeah, I think they've got a bunch of bad actors on there. Some people. I think argue- winning solves kind of most a lot of those yeah, locker room issues, right? I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think if they went on a bad run or something like that, maybe that would be an issue, but. The winning thing tends to work for yeah. 15 minutes or so, right? And then the bad actors just become, you know, entitled bad actors, which isn't necessarily an improvement. Well, you also have to give credit to you know Steve Kerr for his coaching job as well. I'm not saying anybody wouldn't want that talent, but he's found a way. They only have one basketball also. The same comment I made last week about the Sixers. Mm-hmm. And they found a way to keep uh, Clay Thompson happy, Draymond Green happy, you know uh, Kevin Durant happy, Steph Curry happy, and DeMarcus Cousins happy. There's, you don't hear much dissent except at times. <laughs> it's not like... That's the beauty of their team. So, b- by the way, Cousins is on a one-year deal. So, you, right. you know, if you're you're kind of on the you're kind of making your best case to the market for when you're five on a million deal. dollars. So, they got him for yeah. So, he, I mean, he's having fun with the Warriors, no doubt, but he's probably burnishing his his image, right? Kerr, by the way, does he has he talked about the influence of Phil Jackson on him as a coach? Is that a thing? It must have been a thing, right? I mean, he's Jackson's one of the certainly one of the most storied and successful coaches in NBA history. Kerr must have been with him for at least four or five years. Well, how about I mean three titles? Mm-hmm. So I mean he would he and, was on the original set of. I think I've just to remind all of our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball. Obviously, everybody knows Michael Jordan won six titles, three years, two years baseball, three years again. There are no overlapping players between those two three-year periods except for Scottie Pippen, which is fascinating. People don't realize oh, that. Scottie Pippen. No, Scottie Pippen was on all six. No, no, but <laughs> yeah. I'm saying there's not one single yeah. other player that was on the first three that was on the second three except for amazing. Scottie Pippen, which yeah. is actually remarkable and amazing because it's not like it's an eight-year gap in between. It no, was, it was a, a two-year gap. Yeah. I, I would have not thought Kerr was the second three, not the first three. Am I wrong about that? I'm pretty sure Matt will correct me again. I think again. he was the second three. You think he was the second yeah, three? like Craig Elo or something was in there for the first three. But, you know, uh, I think be. what's the baseline? A, a single player playing for eight years with a team that overlaps with two? I think that's No, but not, I'm saying no, that's a completely turnover other than Pippen, completely turnover in two roster seasons. in two seasons is, is, I think. Well, no, but you're asking for someone who played for, for basketball. No, 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 no. Any oh, of the any two. part of it. Any, any part. part of it. Well, we know Popovich played a big role in Well, yeah, I mean, his two, right, his two major coaches in his career were Greg Popovich and and Phil Jackson, okay. not too bad. They've Pretty got enough. a few rings between them. Pretty good. Almost, uh, almost as many as uh, Belichick. Yeah, no, no. Jackson many. has more. Jackson <laughs> has more. So this is Wharton Moneyball. You guys can join us one eight four four Wharton. It's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Have the whole crew in here this morning. Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, and Cade Massey hosting for the next. The other thing that caught hours. my eye was also age curves. So let me just tell you, in the last week, some old people that have done some pretty, or last two weeks, some old people that have done some pretty good stuff. 
Brady. Well, well I was going to list Brady last, but I'll <laughs> list him first. If you want, we Brady's forty-one years old. But here's some other people in sports. So I don't know if you guys saw. Since you know this is the slow season for football, there was a golf tournament last weekend, and a guy named Phil Mickelson won that tournament. Now Phil Mickelson's forty-eight years old. Um, that puts his win in the top ten all-time of oldest golfers to ever win a golf tournament. So not so bad. Um, there's this famous skier named Lindsey Vaughn, the yeah. most celebrated woman skier in history. She won a bronze medal at the World Championships. And by the way, the oldest person, male or female, ever to win a medal at the World Championships is a skier at age 34. Well, well, let me stop you there for a second. That's fantastic. And little plug, she's going to be one of our keynote speakers at the Wharton People Analytics Conference in early April. We do that every year. This is the sixth year. And there's a connection to Wharton Moneyball because the reason we saw, thought of her, to ask her, was an interview we did on this show probably in the first year of this show. So so five years ago, we talked to one of the analytics folks from the Ski and Snowboard Association, the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Association. And they talked about how they had borrowed the methodology from the Aussies, I think, mm-hmm. of tailoring training programs to individuals that heretofore – the U.S. Ski and Snowboard program had been, you know, if you're a downhiller, you've got this training program. If you're a slalom person, you've got this training program. And instead, they they they, they recognized heterogeneity, and they trained people very differently depending on how their body was responding. That's sports science advances. That's analytics advances. They gave that credit for how much better the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Association, I mean, the U.S. team, has done in recent years. Vaughn is right in the middle of that. So we hope to get to her talking about that stuff when she comes for the conference here in a couple of weeks. Well, how old is she? 34. 34. So that's, that's ancient. considered ancient. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I just told you, okay. she's the oldest person ever to win a medal at the World Championships as a skier, male or female. And so that's kind of unheard of that somebody would win at, at that stage uh, of her career. It's actually surprising that skiing seems to have such a sharp age curve. Why? Is well, it? I mean, it's a pretty oh, no, heavy would, exertion it's, it's, sport. I mean, compared I mean, to tennis, which they, they seem to be going into their late 30s now as as standard. Um, you see that in almost every other sport. There are plenty of people in their mid-30s. Is, is gymnastics sharp? Gymnastics, well, by, probably, what do you mean by uh, sharp? No, so gymnastics probably, swimming? Par, probably this has to do with lack of funds, right, if you think about it. If you're a swimmer and you win the, in the Olympics, what are you going to do next? There's no, career, there's no career out of swimming. Yeah, that's there's probably tough. no career out of gymnastics, and maybe there's no career out of skiing either. And that's why you just have to go find something else to do. That's, after a, that's, that's a nice, that's a nice that's explanation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what's possible? I, I don't know if you know, maybe tennis is this way as well. And tennis would have been the other sport I would have listed as you know, just what's going on in tennis. And also, it's not the most major tournament in the world, but there was a moderate-sized tournament this last weekend that Tasanga won. He's turning 34 this week. And so he hadn't won a tournament in three years, and he beat four players in the top 20. So I was thinking of tennis as well. The interesting thing about tennis, of course, is that if you look, you know, do you guys know this this guy Ivo Karlovich? Do you know who this is? Six foot eleven tennis player. The guy can do one. Th- he's thirty nine years only old. Serve probably right. Exactly. Yep. And you know what? Every now and then he beats a top ten player. He's still probably in the top thirty or forty in the world. And every one of his sets, not everyone, eighty percent of his sets go seven six. <laughs> and so the question is, does he win? The, does he win three tiebreakers, or t- if it's a three-set match, does he win two tiebreakers? Does he win three? If yes, he wins the match. If he doesn't, he doesn't. He probably has no way to really beat one of the top four players he, because they can actually on return any the serve. given day. Yeah. He has a puncher's chance to beat one of them, but no, he can't because they can actually return the ball. But well, my comment is, 
tennis, I agree with you. I'm surprised that there's that the age curve in tennis, and that was my theme of this. Maybe we need to rethink our age curves. But this because is because you would have never have guessed that tennis would be dominated. If you'd said ten years no, ago, tennis no, would God, be dominated. Twenty nine was considered old back in our yeah. in our our Bjorn Borg retired yeah, at twenty six. Sure. McEnroe but, never won a major think, after twenty seven. The question, the question let me, is, let me connect to Adi real quick. Let me, I'm gonna interrupt Adi yeah. so I can connect back to something you said. What kind of living does that six eleven guy make in tennis at that quality? He's a top 30 player. He probably makes millions. I would say he probably is over a million. I'll okay. look while you a guys year. are. So yeah. he's, he's high enough in the rankings that he can actually make a decent living. But Adi's thesis is that yes, in some of these sports, if you're, I mean, And you maybe why can't. Lindsay Vaughn continues to do this is that she has enough in advertising and she's yeah, got a big enough name for her to continue to ski without having to mm-hmm. take a job as an no, accountant. No, I mean, it's an interesting <laughs> kind of extra element to the age curve that you don't think about right. across most of the That's professional right. well, sports actually, this that we is, cover. This, this is one of the things that we heard from the tennis greats is that the... The one of the things that was so destructive for tennis careers is that they made so little money, even the top right. players, and back right. in the that they had to play yeah. so yeah, much yeah. and exhausted them. Yeah. And Federer, he plays like four, or six tournaments a year. He he's got this whole staff. He, he takes very good care of himself. Presu- but I, presumably, golf is the same way because these guys now, in fact, they have to provide some incentives for guys to play more tournaments. Russ said, play even fewer. They play fewer. Yeah. But my question is is a more general one. If you think about it, what age curves affect the different characteristics of your performance differently? So what goes at what rate? And, and right. how does that relate to the sports? So right. we know from the esports angle, from the is that we had this this oh, discussion. This is fascinating. At yeah. twenty one, you're done. Yeah, <laughs> you're done because you just you lose your 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 that extra hundredth of a second reaction time is gone. Is that more physiological or or cognitive? I think that's physiological. Okay. But who who knows? We should get a neurologist in here mm-hmm. to, to tell us what's what's the story. By the way, I think that's the only thing I find interesting about esports. Probably, <laughs> really. <laughs> Well, I think this is, this is something. No, you know, Shane. There's another thing I find interesting, which is your clustering analysis. Yeah. So if you can if you can analyze all those data and like group them into styles of play, yeah. And then go from no, there. I mean, I there's a lot of stuff neat. like that. I, I think it's kind of interesting. I mean, just sort of at, at a very high level, I think a kind of a fascinating thing about esports. I don't think is really replicated in any of the kind of main sports that we cover, and I think it's going to be extra fascinating as time goes on. Is it actually is a, the sport sort of evolves more with time yeah because they change players, the rules like they actually can change the game as much as they kind of want to over time right is that, is that a good thing it's a, that well i mean it's, it's, it's a very unconventional thing relative yeah. to the other sports i mean yeah. it, it, it's sort of it's the opposite of what we kind of what a lot of people value about something like baseball that right. somehow exactly. we can compare across 80 years so what do you like about it well, i i think that's sort of, to play I, right i mean i think it it <laughs> If you think about it, it's an iteration towards, you know, even better gaming. They're allowed to if, kind of constantly iterate towards more exciting kind of okay, Yeah, exactly. Okay. I mean okay. I mean certainly if you look I mean, look at what video games were like twenty years ago versus now. They they are certainly much more watchable, much more entertaining, much more okay. exciting. And you know, it's kind of the tip of the iceberg at this point. You, so want, I, you want to share what the slogan on the socks I gave you as a gift this morning? <laughs> I don't think I can share that on air. <laughs> so it's interesting because one, we have a little Wharton team kind of discussing esports to try to figure out well what the future is going to be with this group. And one of the, the reasons I've tried to figure out uh, try to figure out exactly what it is that attracts people to watch esports, not to play them. We know that we know why people play. Playing them is is uh, is fascinating and enjoyable. But the real question is, why do people watch it, and in, why do they watch it in such enormously large numbers? And so the two answers I think that are coming forward are one 
is um, you love to watch the superstars and you watch to play, watch people who play much better than you. It's very exciting when you're a player and you see someone who's extraordinary. Yeah. It's just yeah. fun to do. This is like the Tiger Woods effect. I mean, I, I, I'll never forget the year he won. Brad, oh, this is probably like on your calendar somewhere that the, they won by ten strokes at Pebble Beach, yeah. the U.S. Open, yep. and it just I mean, lapping the field, and you're you're blown away just by the extraordinariness of the right. performance. It's just the number of standard deviations away from what you're used to seeing. His first so, Masters, he won by twelve strokes. That's right. So. So in esports, that's the one um, angle that people really like. And the other is because they actually love to watch the, the experts play so they learn how to play better themselves. And that's not something I think we typically see in the traditional sports because the games are evolving rapidly and they watch the experts do things that they never thought to do and then they bring that into their own game. Now I'm just speaking from what I've heard, so I'll defer to you, Shane, and say, is that about right? No, I think that, <laughs> that, that does make sense. I mean, I think... You know, depending, I, I think some people watch other sports like tennis or golf and actually say like, oh, I, you know, I, I, you know, in a way that they think will improve their own game. I, I, I just remember my father uh, watched a lot of golf when I was growing up and he would take notes on the various shots that the players would make right, and be right. like, oh, I should try that out the next, next time I'm on the course. And I was thinking to myself, dad, I don't, <laughs> good luck. Good I mean, luck. I don't, I don't, I don't think you have the skills to execute what just happened, but sure. I mean, you can, maybe you can take some knowledge from watching some. A professional do it and adapt it to your own use. But let me give you a, so my advisor, Dick Taylor, is wise in many ways. And one of his little insights about golf was that guys who play golf, uh, you know, casually, the, uh, you know, the whole world, sh- should probably model their game more on professional women's golfers than mm. men's golfers. That it's easier and and more and more reachable. Is the perhaps. distance more commiserate with what the type of stuff we're yeah, hitting? It's not yeah. just it's yeah. not just the distance, but just the, everything they do athletically. I see. Yeah. No, so actually the, the, the reason why this is interesting to us uh, is to try to project what's going to actually happen in eSports. What kind of market will it be? Mm-hmm. How, what should, where should the schools be moving and should we be having eSports teams? And how that... And, what's and your this, position on that, Mr. Well, that, anti-amateur well, athletics? <laughs> no, I'm not anti-amateur athletics. Not you you know where I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, Anti-big dollar amateur athletics. Big dollar, well, big dollar for no compensation for the players. Okay, so tell me what's in the student-athlete's best interest about an eSports. You know, it's interesting because you ask the students and they seem to say what's the difference which i think is a a, a good question i think there is a difference and playing and, and football but why do we have football baseball basketball gymnastics tennis teams when why can't we have a um, league of legends teams or a Fortnite? i don't know you fill in I the mean, blank we're, yeah we ha- um, we're having them they're coming up they're well ha- we have we have schools. volunteer groups we have yeah. club groups and there are some schools who are actually mm-hmm. investing and get this so scholarships for this what's the difference and so one of so the question is what is the difference and um well, I, one there's no physical health so let's go that's right kind so of, i think you know, that there's the, a kind of the, the basic the greek ideal of there. There's two sides to performance. Greek ideal, well, this goes back to the idea that there's the mind yeah. and the body and they have to work together and, and that we want to foster both You could also together. say, by the way, there's no injuries that go along with them, too. So I'm saying you don't. There's no concussions that happen. <laughs> okay. There's no okay. you know there's torn ligaments that happen. So I'm uh, look. I'm for Division One athletics. I'm just saying you could argue there's a plus side to it. Not and plus, it'll be interesting to see downstream consequences of this. So one could argue, maybe it's if you want to say the mind and the body. It's more tied to the mind. You could argue that it's you know using more of your oh, sure. mental. It's, it's mental, mm-hmm. but right. it, it doesn't have that the the, uh, the uh, complementary component of the physical. There's also the question: Is is it really a team? And one of yeah, the things that's right. so remarkable right. about about athlete athletes is they literally learn how to to work as a team. I, I listened to a fascinating interview with an athlete who then a professional football player then went to work, and he kept saying how he didn't have he had trouble in the in the workplace because he was so used to being so direct and being direct with people and 
he it just you know this is what you screwed up this is what you did right and in the workforce it doesn't really work so, so what well. do you mean it, what do you mean it's not <laughs> I, I, I guess I'm yeah. just yeah. Uh, Shane's gonna Shane's gonna write this because he he knows enough about gaming to say there's a team element well, well I mean, like, like I, I League of know. Legends so, obviously you play yes, as go, a team that's go. Right. well you know go, tell me I'm wrong those who don't oh so I mean like so some of these games like Fortnite or whatever. Are, are are kind of individual games, you know? Right. They'd be golf. They have both versions now. That, that's true, but I mean, certainly there are games out there that are more individual performance, um, where it's just you against the entire field of people in there. Um, I guess golf would be an analogy for that. Um, but then there seems like uh, there's games like League of Legends where you actually do play as a team, and you have you have different pl- types of players, like a healer versus a. a, a, a a person who does damage, and and you you so you take on complementary roles, and actually do need to play very yep. much as a team. Yep. And do do people? So that's that's a nice feature. Do, does it also have the quality? I'm guessing it doesn't. So this is a leading question. Mm. What about the quality of playing with the same guys or the same girls over time? And you learn. You oh know, you yeah, no, that, I mean very much so. Every, every, it does. So you you come back and play with the same people. Well, I mean, in these tournaments sure. and stuff I like mean, that, you teams, actually play actually in teams. as a I would team. imagine, Cade, similar to other team sports, that people play different roles on the team. Like, for example, the, I have to admit, it's not really a sport, I guess, but the first thing that came to my mind almost was like, capture the flag, meaning I sacrifice myself so someone else can do something <laughs> mm-hmm. else. And I, Or even in cycling, which is a real sport. You know, well, those are teams. Two That's th- a team as well. Yeah. I know, yeah. but there are two or three cyclists that give themselves up. Or even in you see in long races, marathon races, you'll see team, people from different countries team together. Yeah. So I'm not sure that even in esports, there aren't people in certain roles. Yeah. That, like They're not the striker in soccer. They're the ones that are kind of occupying someone else that they can go ahead and... Right. And, yeah. I, and I think it adds an extra level of kind of complexity and also interest from a fan perspective. It does not surprise me at all that League of Legends specifically is one of the most watched games out there because it does this great job of kind of setting up these different kind of roles that you can play within the game where you're, you, you know, some people are doing kind of more like support roles for your team versus kind of on the forefront. Um, and and I think that adds an extra level. So you're not just watching kind of to improve your own skills with a particular role. You're seeing kind of which types of, you know, which particular types of characters play the best together. Yeah, and, that, and that's what leads to some interesting an- analysis that I know that you've done, which is generally useful, which yeah. is this cluster analysis of types of players and strategies. Yeah, that, that, that people sort of have kind of different play styles to mm-hmm. them, you know, or, or different play styles that are kind of more natural to them versus... Uh, you know, more less less intuitive. So, what I my confession, I don't entirely know how I feel about this, but I'm more interested in the analytics of esports than esports ex- itself. And I'm, I'm the same way with reality TV. I'm not mm-hmm. interested in The Bachelor or Survivor anymore. But if you can give me analytics of that thing, all of a sudden I'm kind of interested again. I don't. I don't yeah. I, it's like it's more meta. I ought to be less interested. But you can raise some interesting analytics questions yeah. that it kind of doesn't matter. I'm kind of the same way about the Oscars as well. I kind of am interested <laughs> as far as what predicts if you predict. the winner of the Oscar. I could actually. I don't yeah, so have I much think of the a thing horse about the race for the is Oscars that, I think the, the real question is: Does it have a future in audience once you kind of stop playing? So if if you're in your mid twenties, maybe late twenties even, and you really aren't a player anymore, will you continue to follow mm-hmm. esports for the next twenty? Years. And I think my gut says oh, no, okay. and that makes it fundamentally different when you actually start ramping up watching sports more as you enter the middle age. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Interesting set of questions. We did not know we were going to get into that. No, but that was a that's surprise. the fun of the first quarter sometimes. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning. 
8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Cade Massey hosting this morning with all my buddies and Wharton Moneyball collaborators in the studio. Audie Weiner straight away, Shane Jensen to my right in his famous green jacket, and Eric Bradlow head down, diligently prepping for the next quarter on my on my left. You guys can join the conversation one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can email us businessradio at cirrusxm.com. Or you can hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is the handle there. Shoot us your questions or observations. We'll pick them up, talk about a lot of them on the air. We are rolling into our second quarter now. We have guests this this quarter and next at 8.30, right now, calling in from, we're guessing, New York, New York. Neil Payne. Good morning, Neil Payne. Hey, how's it going, guys? Good, man. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Where, where are you in 538 Studios in Manhattan or uh, still no, at home? At still at home? I'm at my apartment. Oh, Neil, come on, man. You've got a hard work. He's a wife. writer. Come no, on, let you, him be. you got to keep up with your wife. She's probably been like in, you know, at the hospital for hours already. And you're like she eating has, cereal yeah, at she home. She went in before seven. Come on, Neil. Got to. She's an example. You got to step up a little bit. <laughs> I'm worried about you're not really accomplishing enough in your life. Neil Payne, if you don't know. Senior writer and general editor at 538, covers a wide range of sports. The guy comes out of basketball, now he can talk about, you know, skiing, for God's sake, with the best of them. It's ridiculous. <laughs> you can follow Neil, by the way, at Neil underscore Payne. He's a longtime friend of the show. In fact, when we first started, Neil was here in Philly. We had him in studio. We probably had him in studio when we were in the basement over there in Steiny D. For we all, did. It's ridiculous. The, mm-hmm. Old days. Um, 538 oh, yeah. got launched about the same time the Wharton Moneyball got launched. And I, we're about the same arc since then, I would say. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, no, I mean, I feel like we've all with, become with, quite prominent. <laughs> with scaling and shifting. Yeah, that's right. It's the same. <laughs> about the same. Um, Neil, 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 listen, man, lots on the agenda. You've always can you know, give us a good run around sports. But one thing we were just talking about, we happened into a Lindsey Vaughn conversation in the first quarter. And we know that you've said recently that she's the best all-time American skier, and it's not close. Can you tell us a little bit about what you, where, how you reached that conclusion? Sure. So, um, you know, uh, I'm sure you guys were talking about her retirement, her final race on Sunday, and uh, I've always been a big fan of hers uh, in, in some ways just because, you know, it's so inspiring the way that she came back from so many different injuries over the years. And um, when, when you sort of watch skiing, and then I think – uh, as sort of American sports fans, we don't actually watch it as much as maybe we should, but we, we watch it around the, um, the Olympics uh, for, in most cases. And, and when you see that, you see just how scary, scary it is and, and, and the speeds at which they're going and, and just the, the differences that a very slight decision can, can be the difference between not just going faster than the opponent, but also like flying off the side of a mountain right. into a tree or something. Right. Uh, and so I've always really admired her, her courage and uh, on top of her speed. Uh, and so when I started digging into it for a piece about her career, sort of this retrospective, um, I was able to find a resource called SkiDB.com, uh, Ski Database, uh, which is a little bit in the same spirit as um, – you know, the, the sports reference sites um, that, that I used to work for, like baseball reference, basketball reference, and yep. so forth. Um, and they actually have this very useful comparison tool uh, that pulls together your results in the World Cups, which is really what these um, racers like Lindsey Vaughn do on like a week-to-week basis, uh, especially, you know, like I said, we think about them during the Olympics, but they're doing this 
you know, every year in between also, and they're doing it between, you know, like October and, and uh, the spring, you know, and they're, they're running these races. Uh, and so um, it, it pulls together your World Cup performance, and it also gives you credit for the Olympics and for the championships, which was what happened this past weekend, um, which is every two years. And so it tries to kind of put them all on kind of a common scale and, and give out points according to that. And if you look at that, uh, statistically, Lindsey Vaughn is the greatest American skier, men or women, uh, of all time, and she's the greatest women's skier uh, of all time also. Uh, and really the only um, worry that she has in that category is that her own teammate, Michaela Schifrin, who is much younger than her, uh, uh, is already in seventh place all right, time right. Uh, on the women's side. Interesting. Uh, and and um, at, at a younger age than Vaughn was able to kind of um, rise up to that level. Uh, so it right. sort of seems inevitable that Michaela Schifrin will pass Lindsey Vaughn uh, as as the goat, uh, as they say. Um, but but for now, she is number one in that. And so I, I thought it was cool to be able to sort of look at like a holistic measurement uh, of you know this all-encompassing performance uh, and, and not just focus on things that maybe we only look at like Olympic golds and yep. things well, like that as, as more casual um, followers yeah, Neil, here in America. Yeah, Neil, this is Eric Bradlow. I was going to ask you exactly about that because I followed Lindsey Vaughn's career and um, I think the one thing when people focus on her career is that if you look at her Olympic record, it's not as stellar. She won one downhill right. gold and uh, I think she might have one bronze, but uh, you know, if you look at the how do you evaluate, just in general, how do you evaluate people when, if you think about peak performance, let's imagine, let's take Tom Brady, who we all agree is the greatest of all time. Let's imagine he was <laughs> 0-9 in the Super Bowl instead of 6-3. and Is he still the greatest of all time if you don't perform on the biggest stage? So to, to me, her record is underwhelming in the biggest of events. Do you not agree? And how do you think about weighting that in your evaluation in general? Well, I think one of the things one of the differences is that the Olympics only come around every four years. So, you know, it is a little bit cruel the way that timing can play an athlete, one of these elite athletes' Olympic careers relative to their own, uh, you know, the whole length of their career because uh, Lindsey Vaughn was injured for an entire Olympics. So if you think about that, I mean, that is like an eight-year window that basically gets destroyed out of your Great career. point. Uh, if you're looking at like the previous Olympics and you miss one and then you only get to compete in the next one. And you guys know that the, the peak age, you know, uh, for any athlete, uh, is if you take away eight years of that, it can be, um, you know, devastating to your ability to put up, you know, medals and things like that in the Olympics. And also, again, it's, it's really, you know, like a, like a two- to three-week period every four years to, to judge. If Tom Brady only could compete in Super Bowls every four years, I think it would be really weird to, like, you know, it would depend on which four years um, that, <laughs> right. that you would look at also. It's like, it's such a weird way to compare. We love sample sizes, right, guys? Uh, and, and so I think that uh, we have this tendency – to overvalue Olympic performance. And I think it's also, you know, it comes from a place of wanting to sort of get all those medals under the USA uh, banner, you know, get them in the in the medal count. Uh, and we forget sometimes that these athletes are, are doing this year-round 
all the time, non-Olympic years, and that there's a wider world of competitions out there that, that don't happen on, on NBC and primetime uh, for years. Right. We're talking to Neil Payne, longtime friend of the show. He's senior writer and general editor at 538. You can follow him on Twitter. Great follow on Twitter, at Neil underscore Payne, doing things like surfacing uh, analytics of, 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 of skiing. So, Neil, we, we, football's over, sadly, and we're turning our eyes to other sports, reluctantly as, as it may be. And we look at your, your uh, playoff model, 538's playoff model for the NBA, and it looks great. I mean, futures are always fun. You guys break it down. You say, you know, how we think they're going to do going forward, chance of making the playoffs, chance of making the finals, et cetera. And we thought we needed someone to come in and explain some of these things to us because we think of, and some of these things we've talked in the past, but some we haven't, some we forget. You guys are famous for using ELO. ELO across, and nothing like else. ELO across much. all sports. But with basketball, <laughs> with basketball, you decided you had to tweak it some. So you've got this Carmelo, cute, cute name for it. Car- Carmelo's like an advanced ELO. Carmelo, yes. Carmelo. And then, but, but you do extra things. You've got like current Carmelo versus full strength Carmelo. And then you've got like playoff Carmelo. Can you walk us through what you're doing? Because you know these are this is at the heart of the show. We do this across sports, you're, and essentially, it's at the heart of performance evaluation. You're trying to understand the true strength of this team. What are you doing in basketball in this model? Sure. So yeah, like you guys said, we started out with this ELO model, um, which we have applied to. I feel like every sport yeah. that we can now. Like I'm not sure. If Presidential elections that. is coming up, right? Apply <laughs> it to that. Presidential ELO coming up, um, and so we started out with that in basketball, and you know, it, it did okay, I guess. Um, but as we were sort of running it over the course of a few years, we noticed that obviously. The, the most basic Elon models only take into account on-court performance. They, you know, you can play around with things. And, and the thing that you mentioned, CARM Elo, uh, was our attempt at trying to factor in off-season um, player movement, which in the NBA is pretty paramount uh, to understanding how good a team is. Right. Uh, and so we did that, and that was derived from if you guys remember the Pakoda projection system uh, for for baseball, I remember well. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I don't ask me to remember what the acronym stands for, uh, <laughs> but it, we created our own version of that for basketball, named it after Carmelo Anthony. Or no, I should say the acronym happened to spell out the the, oh, yeah. the word Carmelo. <laughs> you just accidentally, by, yeah, by accident. Yeah. Um, but that system looks at historical NBA players and tries to find comparisons for current players and project the rest of their career based on the arcs of, of those players' careers. And so that was uh, we used to only incorporate that in preseason, and then we would let the ELO mechanic, you know, updating after wins and losses, take over from that point on. Uh, and the assumption there was, well, you know, at the beginning of the season, well, uh, it, it's better than reverting to the mean uh, if, if we just know, you know, how, uh, who acquired talent over the offseason. Basically, where did LeBron sign? Uh, and uh, when you do that, you know, and you play out the rest of the season, the assumption was that when wins and losses start being accounted for, it'll just kind of carry things and right. give us a good estimate of how good teams are. Well, as it turns out, in today's NBA, and maybe this was always the case, but it seems especially glaring now, you know, it's almost like the regular season matters so little uh, in assessing teams that you can end up with really warped results, especially on the eve of the playoffs. So, but Neil, you're speaking from you. You guys learned this lesson 
you guys learned this lesson the hard way, right? Like I'm, yeah, I think even bit, even last year, this is it. This must be what I think you told us once. Nate was kind of holed up for weeks at a time working on the basketball model because last year it was you just had to look at your elo, your your elo projections and go, yeah, but they've got the Warriors wrong because the Warriors are coasting right now. And so this is an yeah, attempt to yeah. adjust for that. And I think the Cavs, the LeBron James Cavs, were even more of an example of okay. that. Um, okay. m- many of those years where they would kind of coast into the playoffs and, you know, show basically, I mean, it really is an amazing thing because it's they had not shown any indication from any kind of empirical standpoint right. since the beginning of the season that they were capable uh, of kind of tearing through the Eastern Conference playoffs. So on the one hand, you would say, well, how is how is ELO, how is any model, you know, point differential, SRS, whatever you want to look at, what's it supposed to do in these situations when a team doesn't show any sign aside from you take it, uh, you either take it as an article of faith that LeBron James will be able to kind of carry a team, or you have some kind of system that accounts for the talent, the underlying talent, and, and especially, you know, the, that talent's ability to perform in the playoffs as like a proven, um, you know, history of performance. Uh, and make that you know, basically heavily weigh that as your prior, and very underweight the the observed performance from 82 games worth of the regular season. And that's kind of the point that we sort of came to was that those types of uh, things where you weigh so heavily toward the prior uh, and, and toward underlying talent, and basically disregard the results of months worth of games. Or, Put, downplay the, the the weight toward that was actually the best way to predict NBA games. We're in this really weird place where the NBA regular season matters so little, uh, and teams kind of with talent, uh, especially as we have more of these super teams, can kind of coast uh, and and flip a switch for the playoffs. Neil, let me that jump in real quick. Can you give us a concrete? Can you give us a concrete example? Because when we look at your current rankings, you know the top the, the order looks. You know, pretty intuitive in terms of chance of winning the finals. You've got Warriors and Thunder at the top, Raptors and Bucks next. But you've got this one column, the playoff Carmelo adjustment, which is exactly what you're talking about. How much better do you expect this team to perform when they're in the playoffs based on essentially the composition of the roster? But well, the- no, I'll, I'll tell you that the, what you see on our page right now, if you go to our rankings, uh, which is what you guys are looking at, that doesn't take uh, wins and losses at all into account. So the, the big change that we made for this season is all of the numbers you see on there are based on just an estimate of how much talent is on the roster, who's injured, you know, uh, uh, who got traded at the deadline last week, all of these things. Uh, and we make an estimate uh, for how good a team is currently. That's the current Carmelo rating, um, and that uses, you know, basically given who's in the lineup tonight, how good is this team right now? And then we have the full-strength estimation, which is like, okay, well, when they have all their players together for the playoffs, uh, how good is this team? And that's what we really rank the teams now from top to bottom on. So that was the big change that we made was basically we we inferred the quality of the team uh, during the regular season and changes to that by changes in player performance. So we constantly update the, the player talent ratings depending on um, how well they played this year and and three things like their statistical performance the, you know real plus minus gets taken into account uh, and, and kind of updates throughout the season but we're never directly looking at oh well the thunder lost you know last week and so we'll dock teams points on that uh, it, it's kind of a weird sort of inversion of the way that we 
traditionally ranked teams and the way a lot of um, power ratings work because usually you can look at the results on the field and infer the talent of the team from that. But in the NBA, especially during the regular season, that just doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Can you, um, Neil, can you give some intuition for <clears throat> situations? I sort of see a couple of them on the page where the, the kind of current Carmelo actually is higher than the yeah. full-strength Carmelo? Yeah, that's a question that um, people kind of come to uh, pretty quickly when they look at that. And that has to do with basically the quality of the players that they're having to play now uh, are, is higher than the players that they would prefer to play uh, in terms of the talent ratings. A good one for this was Philly with Markel Fultz before they traded him. Uh, we had Fultz sort of as they were, if he was healthy, they would prefer to play him a reasonable amount of minutes, uh, and some of that is because of, you know, his, his former as the number one overall pick, and also the potential, but his talent rating is very low. So uh, in some cases, when, like, only one guy is injured and that guy, they would prefer to play him a lot of minutes, but our talent rating thinks that he's not actually that good, you'll see a situation where the full strength is somehow actually lower than the current. Most of the time, the full strength uh, is, is, is higher than the current, though, for, for most teams. All right, you can find those ratings at 538, their playoff forecast. They've got Warriors at... 55% odds on favorite to win the finals and then down from there. I want to ask you, did you know, Neil, did you know that today is the 10-year anniversary of the Michael Lewis article on Shane Battier called the No Stats All-Star? Did you happen oh, to catch that? I, I didn't catch it. it was the, <laughs> has it been 10 years? Now? It's been 10 years. It's surprising so that Kate came to work today because it's a holiday <laughs> for him. <Yeah. laughs> it, should be, it should be celebrated in the 538 offices, man. It's like it's like a pion to, to advanced analytics, and it's Michael Lewis doing it. And so, anyway, it's a, it's a 10-year anniversary. We've got Battier coming on the show here in just a few minutes to talk about his career and the article. Very curious to hear your take on where NBA analytics have, have gone in those 10 years. I mean, this was kind of the – it wasn't quite the dawn of advanced analytics in the NBA, but it was still pretty early. I mean, basically, you know, Maury goes out there and finds Battier, and so that tells you something that was possible. But also, most people thought it was mysterious, and so most people didn't know how he found him. What, what, how would you characterize the evolution of basketball analytics in those 10 years? Oh, man. I mean, the change that has happened, basically, like you were saying about him kind of finding Battier, you know, Michael Lewis wrote the story about almost like unearthing Battier. People knew who he was from, from uh, college basketball, and, and he was a, a good player, but I think people didn't appreciate just how good. Uh, and, and the people that were sort of touting how good he was were these sort of sides, these wonks, uh, people like me that wrote, you know, blogs and stuff like that. Um, and, and now I feel like uh, advanced stats have become so mainstream in the NBA that now it's it's actually sort of become the conventional wisdom, I think, in a lot of cases. And, you know, also 10 years ago, we didn't have player tracking. We, we didn't have uh, but a fraction of the things that, that we can look at now. So I think it's come so far... Uh, we, we wouldn't even have this, uh, you know, player tracking metrics if the people uh, back then had not sort of broken down the door and gotten a, a foot in the door of the NBA. And now the NBA, you know, with all the great work that Evan Wash and his team do over there, they're innovating stuff from inside the league, and all of the teams have their own, um, you know, analytics. Right. Hey, Neil, Neil so, just a quick question yeah. on this. Is Draymond Green the Shane Battier of today? Who is that player of today? 
Well, I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. It's like I, it's, uh, there you can find people that maybe disagree about the value of Raymond Green, but I don't think it's anywhere near the level that people disagreed about some of the stats darlings of you know 2009. Like, isn't that weird? I don't know if you guys uh, sort of get the same sensation, but I feel like and maybe it's just the, the echo chamber, the the, um, the filter bubble that I'm in uh, analytics-wise, but I feel like there aren't these, like, polarizing players like the, you know, Monte Ellis type guys uh, uh, from, from back in the day where, uh, you know, you have basically the mainstream opinion on someone is that they're good uh, and the numbers don't reflect that at all. And you would have these bitter arguments about, you know, the value of shot creation and, you know, you, you can't measure this person's true value. I feel like those have kind of receded. They're not completely gone, but, uh, you know, they're, they're harder to come by now than they used to be. And, and, and I don't know, maybe you guys have a different experience. Well, it, it raises an interesting question that's a longer conversation, but if that edge is gone, so wh- where, what is the next edge for those who are more you know, resourceful or analytic or, or innovative? So Daryl kind of practiced that edge at a real advantage for a while, and what you're saying is that it's essentially gone. But that's a, that's a big topic. It, you know, Motion tracking is one of the places that we would probably want to dig into to explore that. Um, yeah. And, 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 and Neil, that's not a bad topic for you to, to, to think about, and we'll have you back on to discuss. Like, what, <laughs> what insights are you getting about players right now from motion tracking data? What do you think we've learned about any individuals from, from motion tracking data? But, well, yeah, I mean, I, Neil, I we're, we're going to have to. We, the surface of it. Oh, yeah, we, we're, we're out of time. Yeah, yeah he knows our schedule I well. Know, we're, we're out of time, sadly. And we don't um, get to talk baseball. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> We've got the free agent thing. Look, if you want more from Neil, you can find Neil on 538. You can also find him on Twitter at. Neil underscore Payne. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Keep up the good work. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Take care. All right. That was Neil Payne, general editor at 538, longtime friend of the show and a great writer and analyst on on pretty much any sport that he turns his attention to. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m., 10 a.m. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew. Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. We're on a good run of all four of us being here. For 2019, we might be four for four every, every week. We're just off the phone with Neil Payne, rolling into our second guest segment. You guys can join us if you'd like, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or you can hit us up on Twitter, our handle up there, at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall, you can send us questions, observations, over, under suggestions, whatever you'd like. In this segment, delighted to welcome to the show Shane Battier. Shane, longtime NBA player after an illustrious college career and now uh, Vice President of Basketball Development and Analytics with the Miami Heat. We're going to find out a little bit about what he's doing and talk about his career in the NBA. Shane, welcome to the show. Cade, good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Where are you calling in from this morning? Uh, The office down in in, uh, beautiful Miami, actually getting thunderstorms, but uh, it's a good place to be in the winter. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, yes. That's fantastic. You were raised in the Midwest, is that right? 
I'm from uh, just outside Detroit, Michigan. Okay. So, uh, you know, I left home, started at, at Duke, and I've uh, been in, in the South ever since. So yeah. when, I go, when I go north, I got that thin blood, and I'm, I'm so soft now. So <laughs> spoiled. and I have a slight chill. Well, you can't go much further south than where you are now, so you found you found a good place. Listen, man, we're, we'd be glad to talk to you anytime. We had a chance to talk with you a few years ago at the People Analytics Conference, and um, it's always interesting, especially with you working now kind of in the analytics side of things. But, of course, today we had a special cause to reach out to you. We noticed a couple of weeks ago, just happened to notice. I went back and read the No Stats All-Star article that Michael Lewis wrote mostly about you in 2009 and noticed that the, the date was – the 10-year anniversary was coming up. It surprised me. I couldn't believe it was 10 years. But that's today – you know, we consider it one of the great, you know, popular pieces in this field. We professors assign that article all the time in classes, and it, it motivates a lot of what, what we think about and what we do. So we thought we'd touch base with you and find out, you know, 10 years later what you think about the article, what implications it had in your life, and, and maybe maybe get your reactions to some of the specifics in the article. But let's start just at the top. Like, what did you think of the article when it came out? What kind of reaction did you get right in the wake of the thing? Well, first of all, the, the process of spending uh, weeks with, with Michael Lewis uh, was, was unlike anything I had been a part of uh, before. Uh, he, he really is a, a brilliant person and uh, a brilliant thinker. And he really, for the first time, I was forced to look at my own career in a, in a much different uh, light and much different way. Really? Um, yeah. I, I thought I'd just play basketball. And I thought the <laughs> things that I did... Uh, were just about helping the team win, and I, I knew I was I was pretty good at, at doing little things, whether it's getting loose balls or taking charges or uh, setting screens or running back on defense. You know the real sexy parts of, of basketball. Right. Uh, but it really wasn't until Michael Lewis said, "No, like these things have a value, and these things are are supremely unique in the NBA, and uh, you need to tell your story." And so I never looked at myself as, as anything special. I, I did those things. I just wanted to play. I just wanted to stay on the on the, on the floor. Mm-hmm. And uh, j- just being able to spend time with Michael and, and watch film of myself, which I hate to do, was, mm-hmm. my, was my least favorite thing in in, in my career. Uh, but it, it gave me a new appreciation and a new way to, to, to look at the game. And uh, the, the article, The No Stats All-Star, really, it, it really gave me validation and, and changed my life. And, you know, I, I, owe, uh, I, I think I owe a royalty check to, to Michael Lewis every month uh, for the amount of speeches and, and attention I, I still get because of that article. Is that true? Okay, so, so we're not the only ones that are big fans of the article. You've actually, you've had, a, there's been real consequence to you down the road. It, it has, you know, and, and that's that's I, I, that's a great testament to to Michael. Uh, he's he's just really uh, tremendous at, at making uh, the arcane, which analytics can can often be, uh, much more digestible for for everyone. Mm-hmm. And that that that's his talent. It's fascinating to hear that it made it in some ways more digestible for you to to to, to spend time with him and hear his take on your game. That all of a sudden you see things about your own game differently it's fascinating really do you think you played any differently you must have played differently in the nba than the ncaa so you were national player of the year you were you won that you won the national championship in your last year there at duke i mean you'd, you'd be you'd had a phenomenal career to that point did you consciously set out to change your game when you went to the nba no uh you know my, my career uh was was predicated on the same principles i i learned when i was a first and second grader playing with my buddies on, on the street corner, and that was do what you have to do to win games. 
and do what you have to do to make sure your team stays on the court and gets the run. And, uh, you know, whether that was YMCA ball, the Birmingham YMCA in, in fourth grade, or the NBA finals, it was all about uh, what do I have to do to help my team win? Be it big, be it small, do whatever it takes. Um, but, I, but I will say, I will say that the the trade to Houston and learning under Daryl Morey and Sam Hinkie and learning uh, just really what analytics were about, especially in basketball, it did change my mentality as a basketball player. In what way? And, uh, I became I became almost obsessed with efficiency, mm. and I became supremely aware of of what was bad and what was good for me, um, not only as a defensive player, but as an offensive player. And I think in the end, it, it cost me an amazing amount of offensive creativity. I was so calculated mm. um, on the offensive end. I think my last year, I think I took, <laughs> in, in a lot of minutes that I played, I think I took like three uh, two-point dribble jumpers. Oh, wow. That. Okay. Uh, and so, but then that was conscious. That was completely. But defensively, it was a huge boon to my career, and I understood the uh, just how to play off the the inefficiencies of my opponents. So, so give, can was, you give us an example of a way some stats or analysis by the Rockets front office helped you defensively? Well, you know, you know look in, in the old days, and this, this is still prevalent. The scouting report on, on some of the great all stars like Kobe Bryant were. Where you know Kobe's got a great right hand, Kobe's a great finisher. Uh, Kobe uh, it draws a lot of fouls. But, you know, yeah, those are all true, but those don't help you out as a defender right. uh, a whole lot when you're trying to formulate a game plan. Uh, but I knew when I played for the Rockets, the the scouting reports that I got, I knew when Kobe Bryant went to his right hand and shot a paint shot. When you factor in makes, misses, fouls, turnovers, passes to teammates, and their makes and misses. It was a 63% shot. All right, mm-hmm. that's that's death as a defender. Mm-hmm. And if you go, if I make Kobe Bryant go to his left hand and take that dribble jumper outside the paint, you factor in makes, misses, fouls, three throws, turnovers, passes to teammates. That's only a 42% shot. Wow, effectively. Okay. So you don't need to be a rocket scientist. You don't need to go to Wharton to understand that 42% is much better for me as a defender than 62%. Mm-hmm. And so it, it became a game of constant trade-offs for me, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's the way I started to look at basketball. And it was, and it was much more. It was a lot less colorful, a lot more black and white for me. Right, Shane. This is Eric Brad. I wanted to follow up with that. Is the skill you're talking about? Is it a learned skill, or is it something that? someone is like in other words you showed a willingness to do this but do you think like you're you have a role with the heat now can every nba player just sacrifice for the good of the team or do you think how do you think about that now that you're in a management huge role? question hugely important question well i do think it's a it's a, it's a learned skill um it, for me it was a matter of of survival and, and a matter of, look, if I don't do these things, I'm not going to play because I'm not that athletic and I'm, I'm not that good enough. Um, in terms of the analytics and doing the little things, it's, it's about raising awareness. So if I can, if I can raise uh, you know, one of my teammates' awareness about, yeah, this, this play is really important. Like running back on defense, it's not sexy, but, it, but it's important and it adds up. And, and that's how I learned all these little plays – and it was a learned skill, add up to 
big plays. Mm-hmm. And uh, so absolutely you can learn it, but it takes awareness. And it's like going to math class. And after I graduated from school, I don't want to do math anymore. <laughs> right. but, I, but, I, but I saw the advantage, and, and, it, and it paid off in the long run. And who are the players in the NBA today? You know, I, just a player that was on, I think he's still on the Miami Heat, that I always thought of this way was Udonis Haslam. You know, a guy who did, you know, obviously didn't have this three-point shooting ability that you did, but someone that when he was on the court always was in the right place, always did the dirty work, always had to cover one of the toughest players on the other team. Who, when you look around the NBA today, who do you see as the, if you'd like, the heir apparent to the way you use trade-offs and analytics um, that might not be seen by others? You know what? Tampering is a hot word in the NBA today, and I do not want to be uh, busted for tampering, so I, I can't really comment on other players. But uh, it's funny you bring up Udonis Haslam. Uh, you know, he's a guy who lived and swore by the mid-range jumper, and now you know, 16th year in, you know, you watch, you come to a Miami Heat game and see him warming up before the game. You know, he's making like eight out of ten threes from the corner. And here's a guy who swore like, no, my, the two point jumper is is my bread and butter. I'll never I'll never shoot threes. And now he's even he's shooting threes. You know, 16 years in, so it, it's amazing to see the evolution of, of players and the education of players in 2019. So um, the, the you talked about the offensive analytics maybe robbing you of some creativity, and there is some concern that this obsession with Mori Ball as some people call it, you know, all threes or drives or nothing, no two-point shots, is um, it's not really the end. The end is winning games, and it's a, it's a means. We think it's the best means toward winning the game, but if it, if it becomes too much the focus, then you start losing efficiency again. Did you Were you alluding to that a little bit, and, and did you, are you concerned about that at all, that if you, dry, if you too exclusively focus on some of these metrics, you actually start missing the big picture again? Well, it depends on, on what you're talking about. Uh, from a pure entertainment value, is it awesome to see one-on-one play and, and see a great step-back jumper and, and with, with a guy draped all over your face? Yeah, that's, that's great entertainment. And I think as basketball fans, we all enjoy those one-on-one situations. And you know, the open three-point shot isn't as exciting as a one-on-one battle. Uh, but as a player, look, we are all trying to maximize uh, our, our individual potential. And players are smarter these days. And they know, look, if I take a lot of inefficient shots, I'm not maximizing what I could uh, do for my team offensively. And in turn, that's going to cost me financially down the road. And so players are just super smart about maximizing their points and maximizing their, their chances. And it's a natural extension that, you know, threes are good and those other shots aren't so good. All right. So uh, th- what about the, the unselfishness? Is that something also – so you're saying, look, the stats now capture what really matters. And since that's in the player's best interest, since it's now captured – then start people start doing what really matters threes and drives. What about on the all the unselfish things? You ran through a quick list of you know, loose balls, taking charges, um, setting screens, getting back on defense. If you want players to do that, unless they're wired to be unselfish, you need to be rewarding them in some way for it. You do, need to be able to quantify yeah, that in a so, way that that sort of allows them to kind of get the recognition for those actions. How close do you think we're getting to 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 that? How close are we getting to capturing all those little unselfish things that that make a team better, but may not be in the individual's best interest? We're closer, uh, but it's it's like SpaceX uh, launching a rocket into space. We're we're still a long ways away from from <laughs> reaching our mm-hmm. our destination. You know, and the funny thing, and now that I'm uh, I'm in analytics day to day, 
I, I appreciate culture even more. Right. And I didn't think I would I'd feel that way. I, I always thought, no, data is, is the key. Uh, but knowing what data can do, it's enhanced by understanding culture. And I, you know, I do a lot of corporate speaking. I do a lot of speaking to, to, to players and, and, and different people. And I say, look, no one ever asked me how many points I scored, how many rebounds I, I, I grabbed, how many threes I made in my career. I get two questions only about my career. They ask, where do you keep your rings, and how do you decide which one you want to wear? And, like, it's funny, but, like, that's an elegant way that I would love for people to describe my legacy. Where do you keep your rings, and how, yeah. how do you decide which one which you want to wear? And I, and I tell people, look, if you win, no one cares what your numbers are. No mm-hmm. one cares what your resume says or the titles or the titles behind it. Were you part of a winning team, and did you have a role? And if you were, you will always be valuable, and people will always want to be around you. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the way I, I, I look at that. So you're, you're hitting us on culture. I think it's an important message for analysts. And I think some of the great, great front office folks across sports who led the, led the kind of revolution in analytics missed this to some extent in the beginning. You know, you talked to Billy Bean about what he did with the A's, and he said, you know, he's backed off to some extent using numbers exclusively. It seems to me that the, the guys who do best are people who are interested in analytics, appreciate it, but also understand the value of culture. So, for example, Brad Stevens, I know, preaches both hard, works on both hard, and is considered one of the best minds in, in basketball. So you, you've been through a number of successful, to say the least, basketball programs. What can you tell us about that culture side of things? It's harder for us as analysts to appreciate. Where does it come from? What are the key elements? I mean, if we're going to pursue it, it can't just be this ephemeral thing that happens or doesn't happen. What have you learned in your experience about when it occurs, when it gets going in the right direction, when it doesn't or gets going in the wrong direction? Yeah, that's a great question. And I've been so fortunate to play for for amazing coaches from, from Coach K, uh, Coach Keener from Detroit Country Day School is coaching the McDonald's All-American game this year. I'm proud of him. Congratulations. Oh, wow. oh that's great. Uh, you know, uh, Eric Spolstra and, and, and Rick Adelman and Hubie Brown. Uh, look, it's t- talented teams that play together will beat always beat more supremely talented teams that don't play together. And uh, it's at the end of the day, it's still about people. We're not playing basketball with robots yet. Uh, we are dealing with, with the, the human condition, with emotion, and it is still about extracting what potential each player brings. And that comes down to humanity, that comes down to culture, that comes down to psychology. Uh, but with that said, people who figure out the culture piece and pair it with the data piece mm-hmm. are those who gain surplus. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the people who just have the, the, the culture aspect but don't, bring in the data, right. they, they lag behind. Right. People, who have the, people who have the data but don't have the culture piece lag behind. People, culture, plus data, those are the winners now and for the foreseeable future. What, what We often give credit to these coaches, as we should in many cases, for that cultural piece. What role do the do players play in culture? And is that presumably as you're thinking about who to sign coming out of college or who to try to you know pull in the free agent market, you must be thinking of what's the what's their contribution going to be? Not just you know on the stat sheet, even advanced stat sheet. You're going to be thinking about what's their contribution in the in the locker room um, on the road. What's your sense of that? Like what what's the relative contribution of players? And can you identify that before you get them in the building? Well, that's that's our challenge. 
I think every team right now is, is waking up and going to their, their data departments and try, trying to figure out that piece because we realize that's a huge, huge piece uh, that we're all trying to find. You know, that we've tried to find traditionally through, through scouting and through watching a, watching a, a guy play numerous, numerous times. Um, and there's, there's no great answer right now you know there are, there are a lot of psychology metrics that are out there and companies that are that are pushing different psychology and and, and social metrics and uh i think there's some value there is it the answer i don't think quite yet mm-hmm. uh but they're all part of an omnibus model that we're all trying to build and mm-hmm. so every little piece may help and you know may get us one percent closer to the answer uh but that's that's the uh, that's the elusive unicorn right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're talking to Shane Battier in his second season down in Miami with the Heat as VP of Basketball Development and Analytics, following a 13-year career with the NBA, long career at the NBA, and then a, a crazy successful career at Duke and in, 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 in the NCAA. Shane, this is uh, Adi Weiner. Um, I want to ask you kind of like a big picture kind of question that relates a little bit to sort of what I do. So I'm an analyst, but not, I mean, who really gets in the weeds with the data, develops methodology, and really thinks about it from the, the analytic side of, of data. And for me, sports is just a wonderful application of data analytics. For you, and this is in basketball, I see a, a huge change, and I'm kind of trying to figure out exactly what is uh, what is the principal driver for why analytics is is taking over basketball? And the, the the two sides of it that I see is is it the of data availability? Is that the huge change, or is it the willingness among the management to use the data? And where do you come down on the on the side? Obviously, it's a balance in some portion between the two, but where do you see the balance lie? You know, to, le- to leverage a lot of uh, uh, knowledge and experience that's in the business world. Look, businesses are always trying to. Uh, increase their, their 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 bottom line by becoming more efficient, and it's no different in basketball. We are all trying to find ways to identify talent better, more efficiently. To you know, obviously, we live in a salary capped, uh, confined environment, and so we are dealing with a with a with a salary cap constraint. The teams that spend their their money the most efficiently in that environment are the teams that win. And so leveraging the data, which we all look at as, as a tool, not, not, not the answer, uh, will help us ultimately make more efficient uh, decisions and, and hopefully just mitigate our risk. And that is it's a little bit different way to think about constructing a team versus you know, the, the, the 90s or 80s pre-analytics, but uh, it, it's a tool to really just mitigate your risk and understand what what the risk we're taking now in in, in our salary cap world. Mm-hmm. Shane, this is Eric Bradlog, and I have a question. Um, for a number of years, I did work for the Eagles and Howie Roseman, Joe Banner, uh, etc., and I wanted to ask you, I have this dream that on draft day when the Heat are drafting players, you're using analytics as a decision support tool, meaning you, know, you guys are on the clock and someone's saying we should draft player A, and that you might be there either with a sheet or whispering into whether it's Pat Riley or Spolster's ear and saying, you know what, the advanced analytics suggests this player may not be the right player. Am I dreaming that, that's part, that you use analytics as a decision support tool, like at the heated moments, right at the big moments of decision, or is that not really how it works? <laughs> it's, it's an input. It's an input, just like our our our, our director of our head of personnel 
Adam Simon, uh, he's an input. And Andy Ellisberg, who is running the numbers on the salary cap side, is an input. And Pat Riley's, you know, heart and his, his brain, uh, which, is a, which is a huge tool and, our, and a reason for our success in the Miami Heat, is a part of that. And so, uh, you know, it's about diversity of opinion. And the, the, the more opinions that you, you can have and if your leadership can, can sort of rake through the, the different levels of information uh, to glean what's, what's important and what's not, uh, that's, that's the value. That's the value. And I wouldn't say one, one is more important than the other, uh, but they're all just inputs. So Shane, influencing the decision makers on draft day is a, is a big part of analytics, an important challenge, but also influencing players on the court to listen to this stuff. So you were predisposed, I'd say, to the data that Hinky and Maury had when you arrived at the Rockets. Now you've got this challenge of having to pull guys who may or may not have that disposition to use some of the data that you think would be helpful to them. What have you found in that challenge? And I, and I remember, I think you told a story about persuading LeBron James to, to, <laughs> to use um, some of these back in the day when you were, as, when you were a player. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, for my money, LeBron's the greatest of all time. And I like to think I helped him probably a half of a quarter of a percent when I told him <laughs> to make, uh, you know, Kevin Durant shoot over his, uh, his left shoulder versus his right shoulder in the post. And luckily he missed three shots. And oh, wow. After, after the game, LeBron said, hey, Batman, you know, what, what, what else you got for me? <laughs> uh, and so I'm like, yes. Uh, you know, look, math is scary. It's scary for a lot of people. And it, it can be really intimidating, and it's no different than when I played. Uh, I, th- I thought that Sam Hinkie and Daryl Morey did a great job of explaining to me in plain English what, uh, what those numbers meant. Mm-hmm. And I would literally sit with Sam Hinkie before the game, and we would play like a game. He, he would give me two, uh, two scenarios, and he would say, you know, you've you got you to gotta close out on one guy and give up one shot. Would you rather give up Kyle Korver from the – the, the mm, corner, mm. or you know, you know, Jared Jeffries on the on the wing, and uh, you know, obviously he knew all the answers, and so uh, just by by dealing with those real world op- real world situations where I had to make a split decision on what would save me the most surplus, and it may be a half a point, it may be you know, so what's the answer point. by the way. Which one? I was thinking Kyle Korver. The in the corner, I, I'm yeah. not giving up Three Kyle Korver in the. Uh, I'm not giving Kyle Korver in the corner. Uh, yeah, that's that's, that's the answer. That's, that's the way to get subbed out real quick. All okay. right. So, <laughs> Shane, how hard is it to to to, to adapt that? How, how hard is that to get that into your system during the game? You've got so many things to keep keep on top of, and you've got so many instincts going. How do you start baking that stuff into your instincts? It's it's practice. It's practice. It's no. It's no different than working on your left hand or or training in the off season. Working on your your jumping ability. It's something you just have. It's a muscle you have to exercise every single day. And so I had a routine. I had my information stat packet before uh, every game. That I sat in the hot tub. I drank a Gatorade and I read my stats. And I went over them and over them and over them. And that was my routine. And so uh, it, it takes time and it takes effort. But I saw the fruits, and I, I believe it created an advantage. So it's, mm-hmm. just, it's, it's like any, any other basketball skill. Mm-hmm. This Eric again. Do you think analytics uh, has affected age curves? We were talking about that this morning. You know, Lindsey Vaughn, oldest person just to win a skiing medal. We see Tom Brady at 41 winning the Super Bowl. We're fortunate to have a, a Dookie, J.J. Redick here, who looks ageless. The guy just, you cannot leave him <laughs> open at any point, at any part of the court. Do you think that analytics has changed age curves, and you'll see people play? 
playing into their mid to late 30s at a much more successful level? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and where the analytics have helped all those aforementioned people is the education on nutrition and physical health. And the research and the data that, that proves that that maintaining a, a low-fat diet and maintaining your body fat and, and uh, training all year round and yoga and Pilates, uh, people are much more educated about how to have a long career. And it's not just about making the league. When I, when I came in the league, it was about, oh, man, I just, I just need to make the league. I just need to get in. Now, people say, no, I want to stay in the league. I want to play 12 to 16, 17 years now. And it's a different wow. mentality, and, and I think players are taking a much longer view on, on what their career uh, could, could be. Shane, we're down just the last couple of minutes. I want to read you a quote from the Lewis article, the No Stats All-Star article from 10 years ago. This is one that shows up in classrooms sometimes, and it's a very much decision-making principle. You just don't hear it on the basketball court that often. I'm curious how you think about this. The quote from Lewis is, Knowing the odds, Battier can pursue an inherently uncertain strategy with total certainty. He can devote himself to a process and disregard the outcome of any given encounter. This is critical because bas- because in basketball, as in everything else, luck plays a role, and Battier cannot afford to let it distract him. Does is that was he overplaying it, or is that really where you got? And how how hard is it for a player to get to that place? That's a true quote, and that's that's something I try to, to remember uh, every single day in my job. You know, we live in the probabilities. And you you have to look if you have to take a probabilistic view of, of basketball because there's so much randomness, uh, makes and misses uh, for the most part are are random. Uh, the the bounce of a, of a ping pong ball, which determines whether you get a great draft pick or not, is is random. Mm-hmm. And you just have to put yourself in a position to give yourself the best chance of success. And whether that happens or not, it's luck. But you've given yourself the best chance statistically, and if you do that enough over a long enough time you're going to have success more than that. You're preaching to the choir here, and it's phenomenal to hear someone who's played at your level talk about it in that way. How hard is it to get that message across to younger players, or even veteran players, if they haven't thought about it that way? You know, the, the level of stats education is uh, is is not as, as high as we, we would hope, but that's our job. Right, our job is, right. to, is to teach and to educate, and, you know, our goal is to, to be able to to uh, get every player to, to draw a normal curve and, and, and be able to explain standard deviation. That's a win. <laughs> that, that would be a win. That would be a big win. Okay, now we know what Shane's doing down in Miami. He's drawing normal <laughs> curves and talking variance with the players. That's awesome. All right, listen, Shane, we're going we're gonna to let you go. We really appreciate your taking the time to be with us. On the way out, we're going to give you a little treat, something you may not have heard for a while. I remember hearing this on the streets of Minneapolis after you won the national championship in your senior year. A little chant, little chant that the Dukies used to give you at, uh, at Cameron Indoor. And on the way out, we'll do that as a thank you. But that's been Shane Battier. Really appreciate you taking the time to be with us calling in from Miami. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Of course. All right, that has been three quarters. We will come back after this for the fourth quarter. But in homage to Shane Battier and Michael Lewis's 10-year-ago article, a little treat from Cameron Indoor Stadium back in the day. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with everybody, all the Wharton Moneyball creators, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. That was Danielle Bruno on the soundboard bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour, as she does every week 
indebted to Daniel Bruno, our sound engineer. We are rolling into the last quarter of the show. You guys can join us, one eight four four wharton That's one 942 7866 Drop us an email, or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle there, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We also tweet about the world of sports analytics. You can send us questions, suggestions, complaints, whatever you'd like, at WMoneyBall on Twitter. Just off the phone with Shane Battier, celebrating, to some extent, this uh, the classic Michael Lewis No Stats All-Star article. Guys, any quick observations or reactions to Shane? Well, the part that he mentioned at the end which is we have to live in the world of probabilities. And yeah. something that you know I have to be a bit, I was looking at Shane the whole time, which is your coin flipping theory, which is, again, um, you got to flip a lot of coins. And at the end of the day, he's even pointing out that it, there's a lot of inherent randomness in basketball. Yeah. I mean, he even his quote exactly was, you know, the guy misses a shot. It's probably random. I mean, there's nothing, you know, so I, 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 I was... Yeah, it doesn't... Pr- I, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I mean, it's interesting to hear from kind of a player perspective that they think about things as terms of process versus outcome. I mean, I think about it a lot from kind of like my perspective, which is, I guess, as, you know, somebody who watches sports and, 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 and the kind of obvious outcome biases that we can fall into. And I do, we, do, we try and stay out of them on this show, you know, kind of trying to get too read too much into an outcome of a coin flip as opposed to the process that led to that coin flip. But from a player perspective, it's got to be that much more difficult because you've got people like us constantly making narratives about your outcomes right, and stuff totally, like that. Totally. Um as well as, you know, presumably like coaches and all that type of stuff that You know, it would be great to, you know, whether it's him, whether it's Bill Belichick himself or someone that's worked for his organization, it would be cuz I have to admit when I heard Shane Battier talking, I was thinking I think if you had Bill Belichick on, that's what he would say. In other words, we have three different options. We're going with the one that we think gives us the highest probability mm-hmm. of winning. If the other team beats us with that, then that's yep. what it is. I can live with that. I just I have to think, you know, when I think of the Patriots and all the options they take, and he's like, I'll shut down this person. If they beat me this way, then that's just the way it's going to be. It's almost like his story with he would sit down with Maury and, or Hinky, and he'd say, should I leave Kyle Korver open or this? I can almost imagine Belichick, Belichick saying, look, should we leave open Robert Woods on this play, or should we give this guy on this play? And I can yeah. imagine, I mean, whether it's Belichick or not doing it, I can imagine that similar line of thinking. I can imagine that, too. And sort of that kind of, like, I also thought it was really interesting to just kind of hear about his hyper-focus on efficiency. Right. And, and, and you know, that that really kind of, again, you think about somebody like maybe Belichick, you might guess that he probably has kind of a real focus on things like efficiency as well. So, and the fact that he, he he focused on it more when he got to the Rockets because those guys were thinking about it. But right. you know, fascinating. The first thing he said he, that he thought about his game differently because of spending time with Michael Lewis. That he hadn't thought about all these things that he was lauded for that Maury had identified in him. He hadn't even been thinking about. Yeah. No, it's not that when, when Michael Lewis follows us around for a couple. <laughs> couple months to see how Wharton Moneyball gets made and like you know writes yeah. that classic article but, about that that's yeah. gonna be a really I have to I feel like I'm looking forward to the insights I get out of it I have to admit also when I was hearing Shane I was also thinking about what we talked about in the early part of the show when we were talking about Brad Stevens and the Celtic Sixers in other words Shane Battier was not asked in the NBA to do things he wasn't great at, which was also a real, uh, you know, compliment to his coaches. They didn't ask Shane Batty to go out and score 25 a game. You think yeah. the national player of the year, this guy's going to be an offensive machine. 
It's not that he couldn't score in the NBA, but he had other strengths. And also, because of he he played with, who he played with, he had the luxury of not having to be the go-to offensive guy. And so you could make an easy argument that the team structure built around him allowed him to focus on the loose balls, the defensive play, the rebounding, etc., because he didn't have to, you know, in some sense... You know, he didn't have to be. He called LeBron yeah, the greatest no, and, ever. And, and, and he mean, didn't have to be the best defensive player, the best passer, and the best scorer on the team. And I mean, it makes you wonder about these hypotheticals. Like, what if he'd gone to a different team that wasn't right. as smart about recognizing where he could best help them? Would he have had a career that we never would have heard of? And and then once you go down that thought process, how many athletes, how many basketball players have there been in history that in that were just kind of thrust into suboptimal roles that the, the kind of unrealized potential and, and, you know, that we it, even have in the game today? No, and this is one of the this is one of the reasons we're so interested in this yeah. topic, and it's so much bigger than sports. The same can be said of any yep. organization. Any are we endeavor, rewarding really? the thing? Are we rewarding the right things? Are we identifying the right things? And are we undervaluing and under under therefore you know rewarding and keeping the things that matter a lot but aren't showing up on the on the on the proverbial you know um stat box so guys uh nba all-star weekends this weekend i mean y'all, will y'all watch this game and and in what way so let's look at the let's look at the starting five so team is this Le- one where the uh, yeah they draft teams so lebron okay. lebron takes demarcus we were talking about him anthony davis kevin durant and kyrie irving that's interesting and then steph curry takes giannis Himself, of course, DeRozan, Joel Embiid, and James Actually, just Harden. to be clear, Giannis was the uh, he was the draft he was the that, guy that right. drafted. Okay, and so you know, same as last year, uh, LeBron took Kevin Durant first. Okay, and so you know that was he had the best, he had the most votes, so he got to pick first, so he picked Kevin Durant. Not a bad pick, right? Okay, yeah. Not a bad pick. Uh, it's an interesting. And then Giannis it, took Steph. Giannis took Steph. Yeah, yeah. Not an, not surprising. What's interesting, of course, is Kyrie Irving's hurt. Let's assume he's not going to be playing in the game. Um, you basically have four big men. I mean, so there's that's I mean, a big team. LeBron right. can play guard, obviously, he can play any position. But if you you know, historically, if you looked at this and say, where are the actual guards playing on the actual uh, you know LeBron team? Yeah. And on the other side, you've got two of the most dynamic guards ever, Steph Curry and James Harden. It's a very interesting (laughs) contrast in styles. You asked if we watch the game. Um, No. So what I will watch, though, is... What do you know? You don't watch the game. You watch tennis at 3 o'clock in the morning. I do, but I will be watching the three-point contest... The uh, the dunk contest. Uh-huh. Um, a matter of fact, I'll watch the I forget what they call it, the Rising Stars game. You know, etc. Mm-hmm. That I'm more interested in than the game itself. But the other thing about the three point contest, interesting this year, is it's the first time the Curry brothers are against each other. That should be kind of interesting as well. So, you know, that should be kind of yeah, an interesting fun. battle as well. Guys, other things on TV that really caught my eye. Talk about catch my eye. This was a classic catch my eye moment. This AAF thing going on the the alliance of american football <laughs> yeah caught your eye why did it, you know by the way just as background every time there's a new football season the first game catches everybody's eye well okay that's a good theory but i would say i mean i i don't remember since i was a kid there being an alternative football league yeah. that had as much attention as this one seems to have it's just yeah, being like the, i guess the usfl would be the closest to right, right? Back back in, what, yeah 30 20, plus years, years. Yeah. Yeah. you know what's interesting about that i so i was flipping around and i saw it was on i started watching it and i said how the hell did they get Mike Martz and Steve Spurrier yeah. to coach in this? I mean, these are legitimate coaches. Yeah. Yeah. And so Mike, Mike Martz. Mike Singletary, too. Singletary's a coach? Yeah, yeah. 
That, less, definitely not playing. No, that's, definitely not playing. No, that's... <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Either way, I, I was just impressed by the fact that these seemed like yeah. legitimate coaches. Very, you know more I mean? than there's, legitimate. There, there, you know, there's some, there's some athletes that you'd recognize, too. Trent Richardson's playing. Okay. Christian Hackenberg is playing. Did Richardson not play well. might have been a first-round yeah. draft He was. Back. He was yeah. a first-round pick. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you can't... I mean, so one... How would you have bet if someone would have described this league and said, "Do you think this is going to succeed or not?" I mean, I, would you believe I mean, the, the game? Apparently, well, one of the CBS, games, but it did better than like the yeah. high-profile NBA games. Yeah. Like right out of the box, first game, you know, whoever it was, Birmingham playing St. Louis or some crazy thing, and they outscore Toronto, you know, OKC or something. But yeah, this, and I mean, I, I think it'll be interesting. I mean, I, I kind of hope it succeeds because it provides kind of a neat, I mean, A, it provides foot, more football, but it also provides kind of a, a way of kind of experimenting with that's, the game. That's the thing that's That I think is right? really interesting. For example, they don't do kickoffs in this particular in the right? Right? You can't oh, rush okay. more than five players. Yep. Well, that sucks. Who doesn't like a blitz? Come on, man. You can only rush five players. Is, is this right? like a safety league? Is that what this is? Which is nothing wrong with that. No, as a matter of fact, they took pride in that there were lots of hits in the yeah. AAF that would have been called penalties, oh, penalties in, in, the the, in the NFL. So no. <laughs> so that's the direction they're going in? No, which no, is no. What, what they want is they want more scoring. And so if you can't blitz the quarterback, uh, quarterback awful. has more time to throw the ball. Hopefully yeah. that'll lead to greater offense. Plus, they're also treating it as a developmental league for the NFL. So what I heard the interview uh, was with Bill Polian, who's very much also involved, or Bill's guy, yeah, he's very much involved. In, he's running the league. He basically said, we want to see quarterbacks in an ideal situation, and this hopefully will give them opportunities in the NFL. Oh, yeah. wow. That's interesting. As, a, they, I as if imagine. there's a shortage of NFL quarterbacks? No, they can't Well, there's a shortage of yeah. good NFL quarterbacks, now, yeah. Now, this could be inspired. It's such a hard thing to do, and yet it's the most important assessment in sports. Let's build an entire league just to better evaluate quarterbacks. Yeah. Oh my God, I have such new respect for yeah. the thing. Well, that's why big... he said they designed it so that there wasn't as much blitzing, and they wanted... Oh, it makes sense and, now. And from the fans' point of view, fans like to see scoring. Oh, come on. It's like indoor lacrosse or something. You don't need to, you don't need to see that much scoring. Come on. You want to well, see I mean, yeah, I, I think they have a delicate balance here, just in general. Like, assuming that they are kind of considering this a developmental sort of league, um, that you want to have some amount of experimentation, but not so much that the game itself differs. I mean, you don't want Correct. to depart so much from the NFL game that you won't be able to kind of the, the whatever players you develop won't actually their skills won't translate. Can we do an over under on on uh, the next game? The, the ratings the in the ratings? future. Let's I think do it as a we should, percentage we that of one. the original okay. game. Well, the percentage yeah, that's right. the first. We'll, we'll, we'll tee that up there at the end of the show. We, <laughs> we do have an over under segment coming up because it's the off season, and that's what we do. But, guys, let's talk about our past over-unders. We have been chided online for not keeping score. We're not really walking the, walking the talk here. Right, because we, right. make, we, make these, we make these bets week after week, and then we just kind of go into the other. for our incorrect betting. So we acknowledge that. We don't want to be hypocrites, and so we started keeping score. So, so sometime last year, we started – actually, what happened was we went we, – we sicked our, our our team on. Let's go back and listen to these things and and write down what happened and see what see what the scores were. So this is all of last year. We had the 2018 over unders, except for those that didn't resolve yet because some of them were longer term. They're not resolved. So we have something like I don't know 60 of these, and we have maybe another 30 floating around that will be resolved sometime in our lifetime. And we were able to score each of us 
on our over-under picks. Uh, guys, I can't quite make it. What does the leaderboard say? What does I can't? Oh, there the leaderboard we go. says well, that I'll, you I'll... have the highest percent of picking, but you pick rarely. Yeah, and you avoid some of the tough yeah, ones. Yeah, so, <laughs> so basically the leaderboard you're a coward. says you're a coward. Yeah, basically. Just, so why don't we do something interesting? Why don't we do head-to-head leaderboard? Analysis. So maybe our our uh, our faculty, our staff back there can say, "When you bet, how did you do?" Guys, I, I'm seeing a lot of I'm seeing a lot of protesting. I'm seeing a lot of self serving interpretation. I'm in last place. And I'm not exactly. Notice I'm exactly. in last place, by the way, and I'm not saying a thing. Thank you. You're um, just class. That's no, losing class. I mean, I, look, right there. here's what I would say. Um, though I would just you know simple math. Obviously, I've made 45 picks. My winning percentage is below 500, which is not impressive. Just a little bit below. A little bit below. So I'm 21 of 45. I was thinking. It just shows you small numbers. If I was 25 of 45, which is not that different than 21 out of 45, I would be at 56%, which would put me at least in the realm of where yeah. everyone... I'm not saying I'd be winning. It would put me in the realm. Actually, if I was 26 of 45, I'd be winning. So let's just so go through the numbers. It's a fair point, and we talk about no, that. No, no, no. I'm not saying... I'm in last. I'm, I'm not, just no, no, saying no. it's not that... Honestly, I think we should judge each other by how many picks we make, so I'm the clear leader <laughs> on that one. Let's go through the leaderboard yeah. to be precise. Yeah. And... Let's go through. So, number one happens to be me. I made 39 picks over the course of the year. I just wasn't here as much, fellas. And I have a 59, just right at 59% win percentage there. Number two, Adi Weiner. He made 52 picks, which is 33% more picks than I made, to his credit. And he only drifted a little bit down from me towards um, 50, towards the mean, which is his number is 57.69. And then. Shane, in third place, but near, is at 53.57%, with 56 picks. He had the most picks. And and Eric, somehow, is a little bit behind there in the fourth place. And the only one below 50%, just a little bit, 46, 46.67. Yeah. So just in yeah. context, that means if we were actually betting on these at the casino, 110, you know, 10% uh, fee, all of us would have made money, three, except for except Eric. For Eric. Yeah, that's sorry. right. That's right. All right. So... I mean, we can break the it data. down. The, yeah. We haven't had a chance to really go through these. We just literally got these sheets handed to us. Anything that you've seen, other than all the little basis for protest that you seem to have come up with? Oh, and listen you, to that. It's, you know, it's interesting how it's, it's just good psychologically. <laughs> you can think this is your, your thing, right? So you're going to try to attack all our our efforts to 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 reclaim <laughs> course, the standard because you're winning. And it's just great, right? So conservative. All of a sudden, I'm a conservative. It's, it's self, it, all of a sudden, you don't want to do adjustments <laughs> or anything like that. You just like the way it is. That's right. That's right. <laughs> there is well, something to be said, by the way, for very simple. I think I'm getting you know? better over time, just kind of generally looking at it. You see more green boxes yeah. as you go down the yeah. line. Um, yeah. like, why would that be, Shane? Well, because I'm, I'm, I'm because I'm you know accumulating curve. knowledge. <laughs> That's right, and 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 just you well, know we wisdom. Should, we should learn if we're going to really in my old age. I don't know. Well, you know, if we're really going to walk the talk, then we should learn. We should take this feedback and learn something. Mm-hmm. We, our homework assignment should be go home and say, okay, figure out what you did wrong. If the if there's a theme in your scores, is there anything you can do to improve? I mean, one thing I definitely need to improve on. I need to get rid of my pessimism about the Patriots because I am I every time every time they come up. I bet uh, wrong, actually. So yeah. interesting because I'm looking right at the top, and the first three picks were baseball picks, and I got two out of the three they, they wrong. Were, they were win totals. They, they were, were win, win totals. totals. Phillies, I got right. Um, well, we all got them. Right. We all got. Uh, we actually, got, so 
interesting. The Dodgers win I was wrong on, and this is one that is really dear to my heart, which I got wrong, which is Hall of Fame forecasts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I predicted under you know, f- under fewer than four, and this year was a four-year, which actually is a tail event, and basically it rested on Messina, who I was so delighted to see yeah. make it, and I lost the pick because he did mm-hmm. make it, um, mm-hmm. and which was actually something that, that I did forecast, but only at the very end when we had much more data. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, listen, we're going to keep scoring. That was a 2018 board. Yeah. We're going to start up. We did last week start up on the 2019 board, and we'll... We'll update it more. I'm frequently. really interested to see, like you know, to your like, like, do we all get better now that we know we're actually going to no, have a behind the counter? I doubt to the mean. it. We're all but I, think, to the I mean. think we should have some more standardized rules so that you know, because this is interesting. If you are a better, you don't want to bet when you don't know, right? You don't put money down when it's when you, you want to know. Yeah, edge. you should take the. I mean, right. Cage so, already so, owns so, that kind of cowardly <laughs> so he role. Owns that. He does own that He's taking a page out of Rufus. I only bet when when I got an advantage. You think I don't? Everyone, everyone. No. Actually, Here's I think, the rule. Here's the rule. If you're in the studio, you bet. That's yeah. it. You don't back off a question. But I think, and I, I, think and that, I, I think because you're the host, you often don't get to bet because I think we happens, talk yeah. too much we and talk you run too out much. of time. I think that's what happens. Really? I think that's where it comes that's from. Interesting. Maybe we'll see. I don't know. I was just going to add one other thing. Maybe another thing we could do for the future, since we actually talk about not Shane Battietti not being outcome-oriented, why don't we also try to measure, and this will be a little harder to do, why don't we also measure deviation from the over-under? So, for example, you might pick an over. It might oh. be wrong. And you could be a little off. Yeah, you could sure. be way off. Yeah. So I'm saying maybe we should just you know eat a little of our own dog food, yeah. as they say, and not just focus on the yeah. binary right-wrong. No, also says the person that came in last. And <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe <laughs> no I'm just a little bit to go, off. By, to go maybe to some more advanced a, metrics. No, it's, yeah. it yes, could be because thank you. Because you, I think you also take some chances. I mean, one of the things you can, when you make measurements, I will now. You, uh, you don't want to, if every Everyone gets them all right. Those get less value in the ranking system than when, than when there's deviation. That's a typical See, way, every, like an entropy measure. Here we go again. Everybody wants credit. <laughs> See, our producer's happy that the line, that the that the hit rates around fifty percent because it suggests that they're a bunch of good lines. So even he wants. They are very good even lines. He By wants the way, yeah. shout out to Matt. Okay. That's, yeah, that's right. Matt's putting that with the actual over under design D, here. Working on a career as a as a, as a bookmaker. Uh, we speaking of making books. Let's look at this week's over unders. We want to oh. close. We want to close with this segment. It's Wharton Moneyball's Over Under. Eric B., uh, you know, you've always carried us through. We'll give you w- one more year to pull out of fourth place before we before we take the <laughs> no, rights away. that's okay. I can just keep <laughs> making predictions. You know, if I was someone that took it personally, maybe I'd be uh, upset, but uh, I you're don't. wonderfully, wonderfully even-keeled about this. That's this fine. Morning. It's mm-hmm. fine. Well, the data's the data. There it is. So I've got, I, we've got some great ones this week, so let's go through them quickly, because I like many, many of these. Let's oh, start they're, with... They're tough. Oh, so much pressure they, now. They pressure, guys. No, let's it's not with, the pressure. It's the baseball that well, drives let's start me with, Let's start with the NBA. So, uh, the, the seed for the Lakers at the end of the season, pl- uh, 7.5. So will they be in the top seven seeds in the West, or will they be the eighth seed or below? And, of course, if below the eighth seed would mean they wouldn't make the playoffs. So let's start with Adi Weiner. The Lakers at the end of the season, are they in the top seven teams in the West, so te- or are they below, eighth so or below? Right now they're nine, I think. They Is are ten, they, ten, they ten, ten right now. And they've played how many games without LeBron? This is my thinking process at this point. I would say they probably played 20 games without LeBron. They played 58 games. I think they're 29 and 29. I'd say they played 38 with, 20 without, roughly. Oh, wow. I'm still going to go over. Over and meaning I, I just, eighth or below? Eighth or, I think they're going to be eighth. That's my guess. Um, so I'll okay. go with that over. I'll take the under. I'll take the under. I think they make it into seventh. 
I'm going to go. I'm, I don't know enough to say other than kind of where they are, which is a dumb extrapolation. But they seem pretty dysfunctional these days. So I'm going to stay with the worst over. seed, whatever you want to call that. Over. over. And, and I will go under. Okay, let's go. Stay. Diversity. By the way, wonderful split. That's good. Yeah. Let's stay with the uh, NBA. 1.5 playoff series wins for the Sixers. And just for our at W Moneyball and our Wharton Moneyball fans, the Sixers will be heavily favored in the first round. But then in the second round, since they're likely unlikely to be one of the top two seeds, they'll be the away team against either the Bucks, the Raptors, or the Celtics. So mm-hmm. are they going to win that series and get at least to the Eastern Conference Finals? So I'll start with Oof. Mr. Boston, Oof. Shane Jensen. 1.5 playoff series wins for the Sixers. I'm taking the over. I think the Sixers do make it to the Conference Finals. Mm-hmm. Okay, Cade mm-hmm. Massey. I, I, I hate... I kind of my intuition says under, but but I, I believe in kind of the Harris and the new thing and the yeah. momentum and and they did pretty well last year, but they're young and learning. So, kind of against my better judgment, I'm going over as well. I will go next. Just we'll go in order this time. I'll go over as well. I'm not I I'm not a believer in a number of those teams. I'm a believer in the Celtics, but I'm going over. I'm also going over. I just want to root. <laughs> yeah, that's all a right. good reason. I like it. I like I it. I love it. All right. I want to have all my chips in one direction. I'm with you. Let's continue on. I'm going to. I'll skip the next one. I'll go to the uh, baseball after. I'll go to the baseball next. Given that you know oh, we're, oh, we're, we're baseball season, let's start with the Phillies. <laughs> Eighty-four and a half wins for the Phillies. Just to remind everybody, they won eighty last year. They've gotten a number of great players, including JT Real Muto, just recently. And Bryce Harper's coming in. No, we're going to. I don't believe that. that. No, I don't believe. But, it but you'd have to integrate. I'm that into yours. So in. let's yep. start yep. with Cade Massey now. At Eighty-four and a half wins for the Phillies, dude. All I'm doing is going to Fangraphs. You want come back to me? I've got to. I've got to find the. I've got to find the website first. I got nothing to work with other than the, what the stats guys say. Well, give me well, the number. No, I mean, basically, it's like can they gain four and a half wins from what they did last season? I say yes. I say yes. Okay, I'll, so Shane is over mostly because I feel like their uh, divisional competition all step back. Yeah, right. I'm going to go over as well. Adi Weiner. I'm going to go over two. Uh, okay, then I'm under. Cause you go I'm under. You should go under. Right. Yeah. Let's go to the, the is, only two teams that actually matter, ah. which are the Yankees and the Red Sox. So they're both at 95 and a half wins. So just quickly, I'll go to Adi Weiner. Well, Let's go, to give be... me Yankees and Red Sox. Are they, the Yankees won 100 last year. The Red Sox won 108. 95 and a half wins for the Yankees and Red Sox. Start with the Yankees. Oh, God. <laughs> this is a nightmare <laughs> choice for me because mathematically, it's under for both. That's unfortunately... That's my purest mathematics. Right. I don't think you can say that. So I'm going to have to say under for both. It's terrible. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go over for the Yankees and under for the Red Sox, which also hurts me. But I think that's the I think that's the right move. Okay. Uh, just for variation and because Fangraphs says so, I'm going to go the opposite of Shane, which okay. is over Red Sox, under Yankees. And I will go the same as Cade Massey. Over Red Sox, under for the Yankees. Right. I think they'll both. Be, I think Yankees will be in the low nineties. I think Red Sox will be in the high nineties, which is still a reversion of about seven or eight games yeah. for hey, can each I register of them. S- I hope they both suck. By the way, so that's, that's the <laughs> yeah, there I actually we go. think here's my, here's the reason why. I, I mean, think, they, let me just say, I think that to pick an individual team to be above ninety five is not a good forecast. That's smart. Yeah. Uh, there will be teams that will do it. Certainly, there'll be yeah, a bunch that are over you. it. But a priori, not a good forecast. I hear you. And maybe the last one, which uh, Shane, uh, this is to, an homage to Shane Jensen, Mr. <laughs> Boston wins lots of titles. 0.5 titles for Boston, New England in the next sport year. So we obviously have the Celtics, the Patriots, the Bruins, and the Red Sox. Over, under, a half. Mm. I'm going to go under. Sadly, I just because I don't, I mean, yeah. 
I think well, the it, Bruins I think it's, aren't going to do it. Yeah, no, the Bruins the are not going to do, do it. The Celtics are not going to do it. So really, it's kind of like, can I add up some of those probabilities yeah. for yeah. Patriots and 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 Red Sox? This, I just this can't. is going to be. A I can't do it. I'd love for it to happen again. But I, I can't <laughs> notice really, how he no. says that. Yeah, I feel yeah. so bad for you that it's not going to happen. Uh, so you're <laughs> going, going under. under. I'm going under as well. Under. Yeah, that's an easy one. So there we go. There are some over unders for the day. That was uh, six over under predictions. That will give me when I go six for six, and maybe you guys go a little less. <laughs> I'm, I'm only ten percent yeah, no, behind. That's the, not the so bad. I'm catching up fast. The slow climb back. Is it going to be a lifetime leaderboard? We do year. I think we say year by year. So I'm like basically the 2018 champ, and then we move. <laughs> Okay. We move into a new year. Y'all all like we, we, we need a that. belt. We need a championship belt. I do belt. want it to start again. Absolutely. You are yeah. the champ for 2018 on all your right. self-selected small number of picks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's an asterisk. Yeah, asterisk. <laughs> all right, guys. That has been another Wharton Moneyball. We do this every Wednesday morning. Get together for two hours to talk sports analytics. You guys are welcome to join us again. Give us a shout. We didn't take a phone call. Shout out to Elliot from Missouri. We Sorry we missed you there at the end. We ran out of time. Many thanks to Daniel Bruno. Many thanks to Maddie Dads, boss man Maddie Dads, keeping us all. Our RA research assistant extraordinary Zach, and of course Dion Simpkins, associate producer, in the back, pounding the bonbons. Hope you're having a good morning back there, Dion. We will do this again next week. Come back and join us in. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.